Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Let's go, church. Oh, it's so much fun to be here and to stand in this place today. Welcome to church. Uh, if we've never met before, uh, like Jeff here in Wilmington mentioned just a few moments ago, if you're watching online uh, right now, I'm especially glad that you are linked in with us today. If you're in New Bern or if you're in Leland, uh, we love you guys so much. Fun fact, uh, today is the first day that we are linked together uh, for our time of teaching between all three of our campuses uh, this summer. And it really is encouraging to me to remember uh, that we are not just a church that gathers in Wilmington. We are a church that gathers in Leland and in New Bern and really all around the country uh, through online. And I really just feel a great sense of gratitude uh, for what we all get to be a part of uh, when we show up and we participate uh, in the life of Port City Community Church. It's such an honor for me to be here with you today. Uh, this summer has been really, really challenging for me. I'm not going to lie to you. I am the worst person when it comes to rest. Uh, so this emphasis on taking this summer and treating it as a Sabbath has been incredibly challenging for me. And especially last week when we didn't gather together, I got up on Sunday morning. I was like, what do I do with my hands? It's like, I have no idea like how to exist in a rhythm of life without a normal Sunday gathering ever since I can remember when I was a kid, you got up and you went to church. Uh, so I'm really, really glad that you're in church today to kind of hear a little bit about what I feel like I'm learning about rest. I'll be honest with you, when it comes to rest in the way of sleeping, I am not very good at it and probably not in the way that you might first imagine. You might think that that means that I don't sleep well. No, I actually sleep too well. Uh, I, when I sleep, I leave the planet uh, for five to eight hours a night and my wife cannot get me up uh, for really much of anything. And for those of you that don't know, we have a seven week old baby at home. So as you might imagine, that's a point of tension in our home right now, because I promise you, church, I would be honest with you, I'm not faking it. I'm not just laying there on the pillow going like, oh, I don't hear her crying. Like I literally, I'm telling you, I totally disconnect. Maybe, I, maybe I'm better at Sabbath than I thought. Uh, but a couple of days ago, the reason this is relevant, uh, a couple of days ago, I, I, I preface, I have to set a really obnoxious alarm and my body takes about 15 to 20 minutes in the morning to hear it. Yeah, do the math. Maddie has a really, really tough morning experience because she wakes up as soon as she hears it. Uh, has anybody seen the new movie, Top Gun? Top Gun Maverick, come on, you've seen the best movie on the planet. Uh, so that soundtrack to that movie is what I wake up to every morning. Yeah, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Uh, every, every morning, 5.30 in the morning, my Alexa starts playing that. For everybody watching online, Alexa, play Top Gun soundtrack. All right, so <laughs> they're gonna need a second to fix that. Uh, but the other day I woke up and well, I, I should say I didn't wake up because it started going off at 5.30 and it was like 5.50 before my body ever acknowledged that we were listening to the best soundtrack on the planet. Uh, but my wife was listening to it and I think my baby girl was listening to it, uh, which they hadn't woken up yet. So when I like finally came to and heard the alarm going off, I freaked out, threw my arm over. I do this every morning and as if I've not learned anything. And I like slap Alexa. But in the, in the time that it took me to do that, I cleaned off the top of my nightstand, my phone, my watch, uh, the Alexa, my picture frame, it all goes tumbling on the floor, makes a ton of noise. And I'm like, well, 
what the baby is sleeping and Maddie would probably prefer to stay asleep. This is the worst thing on the planet. I don't know how last night went because I don't wake up. So we'll see. And I look over and Lennon looks like she's asleep and Maddie looks like she's still sleeping. And then I like lay my head back down. I'm like, I'm gonna get a few more minutes. And then I hear, eh? And I'm like, I am the worst dad and husband on the planet. I'm also not very good at rest. And I think for you and I, whether you're a parent of a newborn or not, rest is, is hard. Rest is challenging. It's why we've talked about it all summer long. We believe it is something that we are invited into more than we are commanded to do. I think that that is important for us all to remember that the God of all creation is inviting us into a posture of Sabbath. But as we've been going throughout the summer, I've been wrestling with a question and it's this. In a unanimously tired culture, why aren't we better at rest? I bet if we surveyed everybody in the room, everybody watching online, everybody in Newburn, everybody in Leland, said, are you rested? Do you feel like you've got a good amount of energy in your life? I guarantee you, the vast majority of us would probably say no. Like we're all tired. We all run from thing to thing to thing. Whether you're in middle school, high school, college, young adult life, whether you have a young family, whether you're in retirement and you've got a lot of different things, grandkids going on in your life, thinking about what is your next step in life. Our lives are full of things. So our culture is unanimously tired, but we aren't really, really good at rest. And I think it all comes from a tension that we have with control. Because we want our life to look and to feel a certain way. And I think this points us to this tension that fear comes really, really easy. Anxiety comes really easy. Frustration comes really easy. Students in the room, tension with your parents comes pretty easy. Anger comes easy. Uncertainty comes easy. Depression comes easy. But faith, faith takes work. Faith costs us something. And that something fundamentally is control. And I think that as we continue to like process, what does the invitation of Sabbath look like as it relates to control? I think it's helpful to talk about what we believe the invitation of Sabbath is. We've been talking about this throughout the summer. The invitation of Sabbath is to take a deep breath as we cease striving and place our worries and cares at the feet of Jesus, which means that we've got to surrender control. But there's two tensions that I've been feeling when it comes to this idea of control. One is the busier we become, the more control we desire. Have you ever noticed this? That the busier your life is, the more full your calendar is, the more uh, full your activities list in your life is, the more control you desire to have over the future of your life because control becomes a habit. The second tension is obsessing over control generates more worry than it does certainty. Anybody who's ever led a team or leads a company uh, anywhere in the world knows that this is true. Going to bed at night stressed out about the next day doesn't determine the outcome of the next day. It just guarantees that we are more worried and more stressed and more anxious about the next day. So, how do we begin to wrestle with this idea that the busier we become, the more control we desire and obsessing over control generates far more worry 
than it does certainty. This came to a head for me a little over seven weeks ago. Uh, I did bring a picture of my seven-week-old daughter. Uh, this is Lennon, and this is her with her new best friend, Baxter. She's not sure how she feels about him, and he is definitely not sure how he feels about her because he gets way less attention in our current season of life than he did seven weeks ago. Uh, but on June 13th at 1219 in the morning, uh, our baby daughter Lennon came into this world and it was after about 30 hours of waiting for her to arrive in the hospital. Crazy story. We do not pay you guys to be my counselors, so we're not gonna process that together today. I'm still reeling from that. Uh, but then we go to Mother Baby, and for those of you that have kids, you've been through this kind of whirlwind of a couple of days where you're like, your world is absolutely upside down. At least mine was, still is. And I'm like still trying to like figure out everything, and everybody's coming to the hospital and seeing us, and everything's great, great, great. Well, then I'm like trying to bribe the nurse. Can we go home? Like, I'm ready for the, that discharge notice to come to the room. We finally get to go home. And for those of you that are parents, you, you've felt this before. Uh, when they put the kid in your car and they shut the door and they say, thank you so much. You're like, what do we do? <laughs> like, do we go get food? Do we go get coffee? Probably. Uh, well, like, what, what, what should we do? We just go home? And then in 18 years, she leaves? Like, what? <laughs> What, what, how do we begin to like even process forward in life? My whole world is just kind of a wreck in this moment. So Maddie and I came up with this great, great idea. We're like, let's go drive the beach. We love Wrightsville Beach. We drove the North End. We stopped by a friend of ours house on the way back, introduced, them, introduced Lennon to their family. It was really, really beautiful. And they're like, all right, we've got to go home. So we pull in our driveway. Uh, I'm carrying her in, which I mean, by the way, uh, that, that was such a simple thing before, like getting in the house. Now you have to unload a semi-truck packed into an SUV for a seven-pound, nine-ounce human being. Explain to me that sometime. But anyway, uh, we come in the house. Our 85-pound yellow lab stuffs his 20-pound head into the, the car seat, licks her from head to toe, gives her a big greeting. We have all this like commotion, like getting everything kind of set up in, in our house. We're like, okay, we're home. This is good. And everybody, no one's there except for Maddie and I. We walk into our bedroom. We lock eyes and we immediately start to cry because it was like the weight of the world had landed on our shoulders. It was like, we have no control over anything anymore because every few moments she's going to cry and she's going to need something and we're going to need to tend to every need that she has probably for the rest of our life. And we wouldn't want it any other way. Don't hear me wrong. But control had left the building and it still seems to be leaving right? Every day we learn something new that we don't have control over. But that moment where she and I looked at each other in the eye and felt that, that pressure and that weight that we had lost control kind of exposes something, I think, as we think about, we live in a unanimously tired culture, but we aren't better at rest. Why? Because we don't want to face reality a lot of times because stillness and, in, and rest in that moment exposed what was most true. So stillness and rest both lead to a confrontation with reality, which makes me wonder, are we avoiding reality by not slowing down? Are we avoiding what's most true about our life by filling our calendar to where it's so full? Are we running and running and running and Snapchatting and Snapchatting and Snapchatting and, and swiping through TikTok every day? Because we're avoiding maybe that underlying worry, that underlying level of anxiety about what is actually happening in your life. And we feel 
Like we've got to grab control in order to be able to have a good and a successful life. So in this moment, I want to kind of present this idea and a question that kind of can help us get beneath the surface as to what is our reality and ultimately what matters most to us in our current season of life. Clayton Christensen said this, and I think that it's super helpful. He said, questions are places in your mind where answers fit. If you haven't asked the question, the answer has nowhere to go. It hits your mind and it bounces right off. You have to ask the question. You have to want to know in order to open up the space for the answer to fit. And I think that that's why I really wanna ask you this question today and I want it to stick with you and I want it to kind of be on your mind throughout the week ahead to begin to really consider what matters most. And I'm not asking what do you want to matter most in your life? What does matter most? How have you spent your time over the past week? How did you spend your time this morning? What was your thought life like this morning? Scroll through your texts and look at the last conversations that you've had. What has been the subject? What has been the point of tension? What has been the priority? What has been the thing that you're trying to manipulate into existence? What matters most? We're gonna take a break and we're gonna come right back to that question in just a moment. When I was coming out of elementary school, uh, working my way into middle school, I noticed that I didn't have any friends. And it was because I was a nerd without the intellect of a nerd. So no one wanted my homework and no one thought I was cool. Uh, And I'm still working on that today with my counselor. So uh, when when I like kind of realized that this was my reality, I started studying all the kids that had friends and they all had one thing in common. They didn't do anything that the teacher asked them to do. So I was like, okay, if I wanna have friends, then this is easy. I'm just gonna come to school tomorrow. I'm not gonna do anything Miss Stewart tells me to do. So I figured I would give her a heads up. (laughs) So I went to Miss Stewart and I said, Miss Stewart, uh, I'm gonna be bad tomorrow. Like I'm starting, I'm turning over a new leaf. It's not a good one, but I'm gonna gonna start being bad tomorrow because I, I want friends and that is the gateway to being popular. So I'm gonna do it. She said, Mr. Gosley, we'll, we'll see how that works. She always called me Mr. Gosley. I don't really know why. But the next day I come to work, or come to work, come to school, and I was pretty bad. I laughed a lot. I talked to my friends a lot. She actually ended up sending me to the principal's office and told me that I needed to tell the principal what I had done wrong, which I gave some sarcastic remark of, what did I do wrong? I was just having community. You know, something really, really dumb. Uh, but then I go, I go to the principal's office and he's like, all right, Carson, you're going you're gonna to need to go to detention uh, and kind of spend some time thinking about your new pursuit of being bad. I was like, okay, cool. So I go to detention and uh, the assignment for the 45 minutes of detention was to copy verses and chapters out of the Bible onto my paper, which kind of gave me a perspective. It's like, well, what is the Bible? Like, what, what, how do I use it? How do I apply it? And it kind of fed this narrative that it's a rule book and it's something to like labor through. And I was missing out on the beauty of the story and the human component that is found all throughout the Bible. And I know for all of us, whether we're here or we're online or we're at one of our campuses right now, we all approach the Bible differently. We all come to read the pages and the chapters and the verses, the words of Jesus, the laws of the old covenant. We all read them through a lens that has been building itself over the course 
of your life. So I wanna give us a new lens to see part of the story that we're looking into today. The first chapter, the first verse of the account of Luke in the New Testament gives us a really, really important picture and a way to approach the Bible. So if you don't follow Jesus, if God isn't your thing, if the Bible especially is something that you avoid, uh, this verse is for you. I think that it will help you. Luke chapter one, verse one, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, talking about the activity and the life of Jesus that was spreading like wildfire uh, all across the country among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And the word here simply just alludes to Jesus. And that was the way that Jesus was referred to in a lot of these accounts. He goes on with this in mind, since I myself have carefully, he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So the account of Luke and the, actually the, the, the book of Acts that Jeff taught of on July 24th, a couple of weeks ago, before summer Sabbath, was written by this guy named Luke to Theophilus so that he could be certain. So, he, so that he can know with certainty of the things that you have been taught. So that's the context for all of the stories and all of the words of Jesus that were recorded and put onto paper and preserved through Rome's uh, drastic measures that they took trying to eradicate Christianity until around 300 years after Jesus. That's important because that informs the way that we read the words of Jesus that we're about to read and apply together. Okay, let's jump back to the question, what matters most. Jesus gives us a really, really clear picture into what he values most about us in the way that we live our life in Luke chapter 12. I made a summary of it. So we had you know, enough time because I'm in a race against the clock right now. Uh, verses 13 through 21 tell the story of the rich young fool who, who works really, really hard and spends his entire life accumulating wealth and accumulating things and stores them in a house. And then Jesus says, well, if you died tonight, what good would that be for you? And then he goes on and says, don't worry. There is life. There's more to life than clothes. There's more to life than wealth. And then he goes on to say, worry doesn't add. Worry doesn't add a single day to your life. He even asks the question. He's like, who by worrying can add a single day to their life? Then he goes, consider the ravens. And I love this because he's drawing this picture and inviting his people to say, consider the ravens that you were not, that our ancestors were forbidden to eat. In, Levit in Leviticus chapter 11, we see that. God forbids people from eating these birds. And he says, God cares for the ravens and he cares for you all the more. So why are you worrying? Why are you trying to control your life? He goes on to say, consider the wildflowers. He connects back to 1 Kings chapter three, where it tells the story of King Solomon, the richest of all kings of Israel who had everything and anything you could possibly want and then some weird stuff. And he's like, you have more than that in the love of your heavenly father. So he gives this picture kind of leading us up to this point, jumping into Luke chapter 12, verse 29, the message version. If you've never read the message version, highly recommend it. It's written in very modern day English. If you struggle reading the Bible, this version is a perfect on-ramp for you to begin to understand some of the context and stories of the Bible. But Jesus says this, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, not be so preoccupied with getting so you can, be, you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way that he works fuss over these things, 
but you know both God and how he works. Then he goes on to say this, steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, and God provisions. Steep yourself in these things. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. And don't be afraid of missing out for everybody that has FOMO. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. And then if you grew up around church or you kind of grew up around Christianity at all, you probably have heard what comes next. And we put it back in the New International Version because it sounds much like what you probably heard going up. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value most will be where your heart ends leading us to Jesus, kind of taking us through all these different examples of don't worry, hold to what is true, hold to what is good, have the right perspective as to what matters most. He's saying what matters most is the condition of our hearts. What matters most ultimately in your life right now is not the success that you're working on. It's not the grade that you need. It's not the job that you've been dreaming of. What matters most is for you to begin to evaluate what is the condition of your heart? Because worry doesn't add. The ravens are cared for by their father in heaven and we all the more. We have more available to us than the richest of all of Israel's kings once had because we've got to begin to reorient our mind and reorient our life's pursuit to begin to believe that the condition of our heart actually is the thing that matters most. And how do we care for the condition of our heart becomes the question. And Peter gives us this really, really great example of this through a story uh, that's very famous around the church. It's one of the 37 miracles of Jesus. Uh, It's in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to jump there. Uh, This actually comes right after the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Side note about that. Uh, When you read through that story, you actually find a sentence at the very end that it says, Jesus Jesus and the disciples fed 5,000 men that day, uh, really signifying that men were the ones that were counted in the event that day, leading scholars to believe that it was more like 15 to 20,000 people that were fed that day because the men would have saw to it that their kids and their wives who wouldn't have been counted in that were fed. So this big miracle happens that changes the landscape of the way that the disciples and Jesus' closest followers see him. And then Matthew uses this word immediately. And Matthew, (laughs) it's really interesting. He was a tax collector. He was all about the details, especially in his account. And I think that he really, really cared about the details, so much so that he uses the word immediately 18 times in the course of his account in the book of Matthew, when it's only used 87 times in the course of the New Testament. Nerd trivia about the Bible. So he says immediately, leading us to this reality that I would imagine Jesus saw what was happening, saw what was happening in the hearts of his disciples. And he's like, y'all have got to get out of here. You can't stay and try to get all of the credit for this because you are not built for carrying the credit of the blessings of God because God is the only true and trustworthy source for these people. That's just me reading into it. So Matthew says immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, demonstrating what does it look like to Sabbath. Right here, I think it's really beautiful. He goes on, later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance 
from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, super casual. Matthew just drops that in there. He says, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. Don't forget, they just fed 15 to 20,000 people. And they're like, okay, we're terrified now. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately, there's that word again, said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Well, what does Peter say? Peter's like, give me control of this situation. I'll fix it. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. What did Peter do? Jesus told them everything that they needed to know, that it was him, that it was the one who did this incredibly miraculous thing. He was asking for their instinctive faith. When he showed up, he wanted them to automatically grab onto the identity of who he was because that changed absolutely everything about the situation that they were in. But Peter said, no, I want control of this. So he asked Jesus to tell him to come out on the water. This kind of presents itself to us this way. When control becomes our goal, faith is no longer our strategy. And I think we've got to begin to pull this apart in our life? Where are we pursuing control over faith? If, if I'm being honest with you, I'm way more consistent in my pursuit of control than I am of faith. It presents itself in, in my life right now. When Lennon cries, I can be frustrated or I can be joyful that I have a screaming eight-week-old, right? That requires me to begin to release Control. So when control becomes the goal, faith is no longer the strategy. But the story goes on. Matthew 14, verse 29. Jesus says, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. It's the famous story of where he begins to get distracted. Once again, missing the reality of who Jesus is. And it presents this tension that when faith isn't our strategy, instability becomes our reality. Every single time that we choose control as our goal and as our strategy, we begin to experience instability in our life because we're not focused on what matters most. The story goes on. Immediately, Jesus reached out to his hand. There's that word. And caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And it's as if Jesus wants him to wrestle with a question. The question would be, when will you stop striving for control and start living in the freedom that I'm giving you, Peter? The question I love to ask you today when are you going to stop striving for control in your life and begin to experience the freedom that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was to give to you? Your life is so critically important to God. The condition of your heart is worth everything to God. 
And I think if you're looking for a way to kind of zoom into your life and kind of begin to consider where is your faith and how are you living in faith, or maybe you're not living kind of in a, in a way of faith right now, a question that kind of will help you fast forward to where you are right now is this. If your dreams aren't so big that they require faith, they are not big enough. Everybody hear that? Everybody take hold of that? If your dreams don't require your faith and a big faith and a deep faith and an instinctive faith, they are not big enough. You have a unique purpose. You have intrinsic value given to you by the God of all of creation to live your life to the fullest. Don't miss it. And I run the risk of missing it every day when I try to choose control over faith. The story goes on, verse 32, we pick up right here. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And Matthew writes this point down, I think, so beautifully. What was the thing that they began to hold on to? What was the idea that they began to see? That if they were gonna live as a follower of Jesus, this is the thing that changed everything. This is the thing that allows you to release control over your life. And that is the identity of Jesus, the one we are called to have an instinctive faith in. A rested full and free life is found by cultivating an instinctive faith. If you want rest, if you want wholeness, if you want fullness, if you want freedom in your life, the only way to get it is by developing an instinctive faith. When worry comes, when frustration comes, when tension comes, you choose to believe that the Son of God, Jesus, changed everything, and that changes everything about your current reality or what you might think would be coming as your reality. So three ways that I think that we can practice cultivating an instinctive faith. One is to stay really focused. This is really, really difficult for me in the way of developing faith right now because my life is absolutely full of distractions, especially through when I get home, at the end of the day, I'm not done. I have an eight-week-old baby who needs my attention and needs to make me, or needs me to make her smile, right? Like, I, that is my lead goal every day when I get home. I'm like, smile. And I do all these crazy things to try and get her to smile. We've got to stay focused, though. We've got to stay focused on what actually matters most, and that is the condition of our heart. Our world is full of distraction. If you want distraction, just open your phone. Ride down the road and read the billboards. Talk to that person who frustrates you or has that kind of highway to kind of get underneath your skin. Our lives are full of distraction. We will miss what is ultimately true if we live distracted. Got to stay focused. Second thing, stop striving for control. One thing a week, pick a day. Maybe it's Monday. Maybe it's Thursday. Maybe it's Friday. You're, gonna, you're just gonna say, I'm gonna stop controlling this one thing about my life. I'm gonna stop trying to manipulate something into existence in this area of my life. Kids, do not quote this from me to your parents. But for all of us to begin to wrestle with, 
What's one thing that we can stop striving for control within? And the third thing is start considering the condition of your heart because the condition of your heart matters most. What's on your mind in the morning? Scroll back through your text messages. What has the subject of conversation been? What's your tone been like? What is that thing that has authority over your value? Start considering the condition of your heart. And don't forget that fear comes easy. Worry comes easy. Tension, drama, uncertainty, aggravation, they all come easy. But faith is possible. No matter what you're in right now, faith is possible. Ask Peter. Ask Luke. Matthew. Mark. People who went on to give their very life because of their belief in who Jesus said that he was when he said that he was the son of God. So much so it would literally and physically cost them everything because they had so much faith in who Jesus is. So my question that I would love to leave with you today is what would be different? What would be different if you began to choose faith over fear? What would be different if you actually paid attention to the condition of your heart, created a rhythm of life where you weren't avoiding reality, where you practiced stillness, where you practiced rest, to be able to look inwardly and go, how am I doing really? And what is ultimately true about me in light of who Jesus really is. I would love for you to begin to ask yourself this question, to maybe ask your family this question, ask your kids this question, because I believe when we do, we'll begin to see the faith and the way of life that we are made for. Jesus, thank you for today. God, thank you that you are trustworthy and that you are good. God, I ask that as we bring our time together to a close today, that we would begin to ask ourselves the question, what would be different if our faith was in your identity and your goodness alone? God, I pray for the grip of control to begin to be released in everybody's lives, in Newburn and in Leland and online and everybody in this room right now, out in the hallway right now. God, I pray that we would be people who say that just because fear comes easy doesn't mean that that will be our choice, that we'll relinquish control and step into the life that we are made to live and provided for by you. God, we love you and we say this in your name.